Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Haba lehorgecha hashkem lehorgo. If someone comes to try to kill you, you should rise and kill him first. So says the Babylonian Talmud. And though Israel does not govern itself by Talmudic law, this saying has become a watchword of Israel's security services, the Mossad in particular. Our guest today is Israeli investigative journalist and staff writer for the New York Times magazine, Ronen Bergman, who wrote the best-selling book, Rise and Kill First, an analysis of the Mossad's use of targeted assassinations and how this tactic came to be a key feature of Israel's security doctrine. Ronen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sophie, for the invite. It's a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> well, after literally writing the book on it, you are an expert on Israel's use of targeted assassination as a matter of security policy, whereas I have seen the Steven Spielberg movie Munich. So there's a lot that I and our AJC Passport listeners can learn from you. How did Israel first decide to embrace this controversial tactic? I'll address the question in two seconds. Just before you mentioned the, the movie Munich sure. by Steven Spielberg, which was also an, uh, an Academy Award nominee and <laughs> considered to be a very good film, in which I concur. I think it's a very good film. But when thinking of the facts, this is the, it could be easily described as a movie with many, many, many fake news. There is very little connection between what you see about the Mossad in the movie and how Mossad really acts in reality. Well, that's exactly my point. I'm trying to get a sense from you about the difference between the Hollywood Mossad and the Israeli Mossad. Yeah, well, in the movie, for example, the, uh, the guy who also was the, uh, the one who fabricated his CV and claimed to be Avner, the chief of the Mossad assassin, assassination unit, is one recruited directly by Mossad and Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister, and then hiring a group of mercenaries in order to go and kill the people behind the uh, Munich massacre, the massacre of the athletes. And they are doing that completely separated from the Mossad in order to enable Mossad to deny any responsibility. But in truth, most of the assassination operations by Israeli intelligence are not done by mercenaries, are not by, <laughs> done by non-Israelis. On the contrary, they are done because of their sensitivity, because of the risk that someone would flip and give the, the information and the, the, the secrets of the, these very, very complicated information uh, operations. These are done according to blue and white color principles which basically the, the, the colors of the flag of Israel, which basically says that in these highly risky and sensitive operations, only Israeli operatives, Jewish Israeli citizens who are full-time employees of the Mossad, are going to take place. The assassination campaign following the killing of the athletes were not approved, confirmed or approved by any secret court. They were confirmed and approved by Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, they were not done against the perpetrators of the Munich Olympic operation. These people, unfortunately, were, most of them, almost all of them, beyond the reach of the Mossad that took refuge in Arab countries. Mossad decided to 
or what Munich changed was the decision by the country, by the state, by the government of Israel not to satisfy itself with killing Palestinian terrorists inside Arab countries, but to do that in Europe. That was the major change. Before Munich, the Mossad approached Golda Meir, according to the Israeli regulation, only the prime minister is authorized to okay what is called in Mossad negative treatment. That's the code word for vaccination. So only the prime minister also is also authorized to, to okay a negative treatment. They, and they asked Golda Meir to confirm their recommendation to kill Palestinian terrorists in Europe. And she refused. She said, these are sovereign, friendly countries. If we ask for permission to kill people on their territory, they will refuse. And if we don't tell them, they are going to be ballistic. This is not simple. This is not our country. And she refused. And Munich changed that. The furious Golda Meir, because of the incompetency of the German authorities, led a different view and permit Mossad to kill Palestinian operatives, steal of operatives in Europe. And this is what happened after the Munich operation. And was that a successful, and this could be a leading follow-up question, was it successful from the point of view of Mossad? I would say that the thing that they were not able to achieve was to actually get into and kill, chase down and kill the people were directly blamed and responsible for what happened in Munich. But the fact that they killed many other Palestinian operatives convinced the chief of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and his deputy, Abu Jihad, Khalil Wazir, that continuing to work in Europe bear, I would say, a significant price tag. They should leave Europe and reconcentrate on the Middle East. And that gave Israelis and Jews in Europe many years of peace. Ronan, what's an example of a notable success story of the use of this tactic? And maybe you can also share a notable mistake. Yeah, well, you know, not always the Israeli or the Jewish James Bond is really a James Bond. Sometimes he's, he's more like an Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> but, uh, but most of the operations were, uh, were a success. I think that a notable success is the, the target that the chief of the Mossad in the previous decade, Mayor Dagan, who died in 2016 and uh, has become one of the legendary figures in the history of Israeli intelligence. I asked him, he gave me a series of interviews before he died, and I asked him what was the most important operation that he did, the one that he's most proud of. And Dagan, who is a practical person, but also sensitive to symbols, he said, Roman, you know, when I came to office, there was one person I asked people to pay special attention in to try to trace down and kill because of his genius, his devilish genius in operations, but also because of the symbol, because he was such, considered to be such a bulletproof phantom that nobody could kill. That person is Imad Mounia, the commander, the, the military commander of Hezbollah, who for 25 years was able to elude his, his hunters that the Mossad had only one vague photograph of him as a young person, was wanted by 41 different countries, number one on the wanted list of America and Israel, who killed hundreds of Americans, Israelis, French, uh, British, Lebanese, many, many others. And I, I don't want to, to, to go spoiler, and I hope that all of your 
audience would, would read the book, would read <laughs> Rise and Kill first. But uh, just to summarize it, in late 2006, Monia believed that Israel would try to kill him and his boss, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. And he convinced Hassan Nasrallah to remain in the bunker and relocated himself to Damascus, where he felt safer than Beirut. And again, not spoiling the reading of the book, but this was his main mistake because Israel had a better penetration into the rank of Syrian intelligence who were guarding him. But this was not enough. And in order to kill Imad Munia, Israel had to ask the United States Central Intelligence Agency for massive help. The United States had something in Damascus that nobody in Israel had. This is an embassy. Hmm. Embassy enables you to do a lot of intelligence. And these two organizations, with special permission from President Bush, joined forces and were able to end the longest manhunt in the history of mankind. And on the 16th of February 2008, were able to target and kill the person codenamed Morris, Imad Munir. And what about a prominent mistake? Um, let me just say that his killing was so significant that Hezbollah and the Iranians appointed four or five different individuals to, to uh, succeed him, but all of them together couldn't reach the, the, you know, the, the, the minimum of his operational and intelligence capabilities. His lack or his um, absence is still profoundly felt by, uh, by Hezbollah. Um, an operation that didn't succeed, I would, um, you know, they say that in every tragedy or drama, there's always a comic relief. So uh, I would choose the first, um, I would say, extensive or serious in the sense of, 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 uh, of approach, attempt to kill Yasser Arafat. This happened in uh, September 1968, a few months before. And an Israeli psychiatrist working for the Israeli Navy approached the chiefs of intelligence and said, listen, I have a plan how to kill Yasser Arafat. I know that you are paying a lot of attention to him. Arafat is the young leader of the PLO. He said, I just watched this film, The Manchurian Candidate, <laughs> where the you know, Chinese are hypnotizing the, um, an American POW and sending him to, to assassinate the... Um, the American uh, president uh, um, uh, nominee and um, candidate. And, um, and so he said, if you give me a Palestinian inmate, a PLO member, I can hypnotize him, program him, Jason Bornstein, and send him to kill Yasser Arafat. And amazingly, the chiefs of Israeli intelligence adopted that plan. They gave him a special facility. He, he hypnotized a Palestinian. He programmed him to, to shoot, actually shoot pro, uh, pictures of Yasser Arafat. And in a stormy night in September 1968, that Palestinian crosses the Jordan River to Jordan. And uh, the, the shrink, the psychiatrist, give him the special code words, and he, he ensures that he's fully programmed, fully brainwashed, and he's going to kill Yasser Arafat. Only in the morning, Israeli intelligence received reports from their agents that a guy in the middle of the night, a guy came to one of the Jordanian police stations, said, my name is this and that. The stupid Israelis thought they brainwashed <laughs> me and sent me to kill Yasser Arafat. 
here's my gun, here's the radio, please take me to Abu Ammar, that uh, Noam Laguerre of Yasser Arafat, I want to sway allegiance to the Palestinian cause and to the armed struggle. <laughs> you know, you say Manchurian candidate. To me, it, it reminds me of the movie Zoolander, but I guess that's maybe a generational gap. Uh, on the whole, would you say that Israel's intelligence services have learned from their mistakes or repeated them? Obviously not repeated them verbatim. I, I don't think we've had a, a fiasco like that again, but have they grown from what they've learned? Well, yes, I think that um, if you look at the history of Israeli intelligence, um, uh, the book, uh, Rise and Kill First, um, which took me eight years to write, uh, described the history, basically the history of Israeli intelligence, not just the Mossad, but also the Shin Bet, the domestic secret service and military intelligence, the three branches encompassing the Israeli intelligence community. And if you look, there are, of course, periods of, uh, that you can describe as low ad. And then the recovery. So, for example, for a very long time, Israel could not figure out how to fight jihadist organizations, terrorist organizations, and especially their preferred weapon, suicide killing. And only after a time, they developed, I would say, uh, something that could, that could be seen as a two-pillar or two-leg method, modus operandi, based on precise intelligence about the people recruiting and indoctrinating and sending the suicide bomber. It's not the suicide bomber, bomber itself, on one, on one leg. And the other leg is targeted killing these, these people. And Israeli intelligence was the first, and I think some of the only intelligence service in the world that was able to stop what was for a very long time considered to be unstoppable. How do you stop a person who is considered, who is uh, armed, with the, with the suicide vote, doesn't care for dying, wants to save his, his, uh, his, his seat in, in heaven, doesn't need recruitment, only carrying the suicide bell with the switch of, of off and on. He avoids the bus, he, he moves the switch from off to on, exposing him. How do you stop such a person? You cannot deter him to die, he, also, he already is willing to die. But Israeli intelligence, when they targeted the people sending them, figured out that these people who have no hesitation with sending other people to their death. Once the price tag is attached to their life and their family, well, they think twice. And Israeli intelligence defeated suicide terrorism, and I would say more, by the use, the combined use of precise intelligence based mostly on technology and targeted killing, Israel was able to bring jihadist organizations like Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad on their knees to beg for a ceasefire. This is a major achievement. When news breaks about another dead scientist in Iran or in Syria, what are the details that you look for to determine if it's likely to have been an Israeli operation? Or is it always an Israeli operation? No, 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 not at all. No, no, there were the Mossad not denying and not confirming, not uh, replying and not commenting. Uh, received credit for a lot of operation that it didn't, it was not involved, it didn't know anything about. Um, well, uh, I look for modus operandi, and there are a few modus operandi that Mossad repeat. Uh, but, you know, this is not enough. I just, you know, I pick up the phone and I call people and I meet people and I ask them. So, you know, sources are the right way to understand whether Israeli intelligence was or was not behind it. 
And as you can see, the book is based on uh, conversations with 1,000 interviews and sources. And um, these people uh, shared with me and through me with the readers with much information about Israeli operations. Is there any disagreement in Israeli domestic discourse over whether these assassinations are a good and wise tactic, or is everyone basically on board? I think that the discourse or the the, uh, the, the disagreement is not about the assassinations uh, or whether they are legal, justified, and effective. Um, I think that there should be more discourse on that, but uh, more dis- Folks, the book is Rise and Kill First by Ronen Bergman. I encourage you all to check it out and read it. It is an incredibly gripping narrative, a historical narrative that reads, uh, in many instances, like the most fantastic spy novels. So absolutely, uh, everyone should check out the book. And uh, Ronen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been over 60 years since Israel and the Philippines established relations. Yet, during that time, no Philippine leader has visited the Jewish state. Then, this past weekend, President Rodrigo Duterte arrived at Tel Aviv's Ben-Gurion airport. Most VIP guests to the Jewish state are welcomed with great fanfare. But this leader, who once compared himself to Hitler, has publicly joked about raping women and is under investigation by the International Criminal Court for overseeing death squads that killed drug users and suspected criminals when he was a mayor, got a more muted reception. Joining us to explain who Rodrigo Duterte is and how Israel is engaging with him is the director of AJC's Asia-Pacific Institute, Shira Lohenberg. Shira, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. During the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Donald Trump joked that he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and pay no political price. Rodrigo Duterte has actually bragged about killing people when he was a mayor, and that seems to almost be part of his political appeal. How did it happen that the people of the Philippines elected someone like this? He does have enormous appeal in the Philippines, or he seems to, and I think that from what the middle class or regular Filipinos had been suffering because of high crime, which apparently is associated with the drug trade, his efforts are welcomed by many people, that their quality of life seems to be improving because of this. 
I can't explain it. I'm, I'm not uh, a resident or citizen of the Philippines, but perhaps they're willing to overlook some of his methodology and his bravado uh, and his reputation for what they see as their immediate benefit. I can't explain it, just as I can't explain this country. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we know a little bit about how he came to power, why did Duterte decide now this week to travel to Israel? I don't know that the timing of it, you know, this week to travel to Israel versus a month ago or a month from now, I don't know anything about the timing of that. I do know that the relationship between the two countries is strong and has been increasing as also other countries in Asia have increased their trade relationships and ties with Israel. So Philippines may be just an, another one of these countries. Um, it has been reported that among the many issues that were, were to, that were to be discussed including trade issues having to do with agriculture and other aspects that defense, uh, military defense purchases by the Philippines was to be discussed. And I think that that is probably a, a pretty major part of, of what the motivation was for the trip. There were a great number of MOUs signed on this trip. I think that it, it was more of a trade motivation rather than a political one. Shira, my understanding, and you are our expert in this part of the world, my understanding is that in the Asia-Pacific region, there isn't really anti-Semitism in any kind of classical way that we think about it. Is that true in the Philippines as well? How did people think of Jews and Israel there? And what was the public sense around Duterte's trip to Israel? The Asia-Pacific region is vast and quite diverse. So in general, I think that your statement is accurate. Certainly the major countries that we deal with, China, Japan, South Korea, India, anti-Semitism is, is not a large factor. It hasn't existed. It's not something that is prevalent in the population. Philippines is a Catholic-majority country, so they may have a different history than some of these other countries that I mentioned and others in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, I have not read or heard about any great preponderance of anti-Semitism in the Philippines. There had been a small Jewish community of Jews in the Philippines. They don't have great prominence. Most of them had been merchants or in the business um, sector, as in other parts of the Asia-Pacific. I think that what can be said about the relationship with Israel, so perhaps not Jews, there are a great many Filipinos who work in Israel, mostly as home caregivers. There are approximately 30,000. And Israel has a very good reputation of, uh, of treating workers well, which contrasts with many other parts of the Middle East where also there are Asians who come to work in construction or work in home care. So the reputation of Israelis or of Jews, I think, is quite positive in the Philippines. And how was Duterte received in Israel? Was there any debate around Israel about whether he should be invited, about you know, his reception when he, when he ultimately came? There was a great deal of debate and there were protests when he was in Israel, certainly among human rights organizations and activists. There were protests when he met with uh, President Rivlin. There were protests around his home. Because of the human rights violations that Duterte is accused of, primarily in his war on drugs, where there are an estimated, depends on what the source is, between 4,000 to 12,000 extrajudicial killings. He has been investigated, Philippines has been investigated by the International Criminal Court, and there is a lot of international attention and condemnation of his activities. So in Israel as well, 
It was a controversial visit. There have been other visits by other autocratic leaders to Israel visiting in recent times, like um, Vladimir Putin or Orban from Hungary and others. So uh, he's he's not alone um, in facing protests in Israel, but certainly his visit did draw attention. Shira, Israel's president, Ruben Rivlin, has this kind of teddy bear vibe going on, right? He's big. He's boisterous. He always has a grin on his face. He's a hugger. And I was struck by the footage of him meeting Rodrigo Duterte. There was maybe a smile playing around the corners of his lips just because he can't stop smiling ever. But he was fairly grim for him. And and actually, he met with Duterte just after Duterte had visited Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial. And President Rivlin gave a little bit of a lecture about how evil Hitler was all, in fact, uh, of course, a, a, a reference back to when Duterte had compared himself to Hitler. What do we take out of this part of the trip? I think it was a very important part of the trip. Uh, most world leaders do visit Yad Vashem. It's part of the uh, part of the state visit. Uh, I think it was especially important for Duterte because he had made among many reprehensible <laughs> remarks, uh, he made really reprehensible r- remarks comparing himself favorably to Hitler, um, who he said slaughtered three million and he would do the same uh, in the Philippines to rid it of. Wow. So so at once he's having the actual number of Jews that Hitler killed in the Holocaust. Correct. And also saying that that was maybe he didn't exactly say that that was a good thing, but he said that he would like to do something similar. Yes. Uh, really putting Hitler's actions in, in a positive light. Wow. Which is a despicable thing to think and say. So I think that he was rightly called out on it by the Jewish community in the Philippines, by the global Jewish community and by many others. You know, perhaps ignorance, perhaps a lack of sensitivity, but a wrong thing to say. So I think that President Rivlin's admonishment or lecture was perfectly appropriate. I also think that the visit to Yad Vashem was very important, perhaps giving President Duterte a better perspective on history and what the meaning of his words was. From what I have heard and read about his visit, it was a positive one, and he did behave appropriately and make more appropriate remarks. Whether it's enough, I don't know. I think those kinds of comments take a lot to make up for. What should be our ultimate takeaway from this visit? You know, I I don't know if you want to give it a grade or if there's any specific kind of, you know, sense of of these were the, the three most important outcomes. But in conclusion, what should we think of Duterte's visit to Israel? Well, if we think in purely practical terms of Israel reaching out to countries in Asia Pacific, strengthening ties there, it's a positive visit in those terms, strengthening economic ties, perhaps political ties. One thing that was speculated on before the visit was whether or not there would be discussion or an announcement of the Philippines following the U.S. example of moving the embassy. There have been no announcements. Um, I suspect it was discussed, but there have been no announcements of that. Apart from that, it's just a strengthening of the economic ties, and that is good for Israel. I will not comment on the human rights part of it. I think that it is problematic. Israel has faced criticism before uh, for providing defense military equipment to other countries, such as Myanmar. And I think that if Israel is indirectly contributing to human rights violations in the Philippines, it is worthy of our attention and condemnation. But purely on an economic and political level at this point, I think that the visit is something to be celebrated. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? New beginnings. Good for the Jews? I'm thinking about new beginnings this week, as Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is right around the corner. This season is a time for self-reflection, for thinking about where we fell short this past year and where we could do better in the year ahead. This process called Cheshbon HaNefesh is a great way to start fresh in the new year. But the real test is not in this process of assessment and resolution, but in whether we change our deeds to match what we know to be right, whether we actually live up to our vow to be better. In that spirit, it's important to note that the British Labour Party has, belatedly, done the right thing and adopted an internationally recognized definition of anti-Semitism. We've covered this issue extensively on Passport, including in conversations with Labour Member of Parliament John Mann and with British journalist Josh Glancy. But the real test for Labour is a practical exam, not an oral one. It's one thing to say the right thing, especially when that thing is so glaringly obvious. Will Labour now take action to be better, to expel anti-Semitic members, to recognize that some criticism of Israel is actually just thinly veiled anti-Semitism? Will party leader Jeremy Corbyn apologize for his past anti-Semitism? If this truly marks a new beginning for the Labour Party, which is no small thing and not a given, then that would be good for the Jews. Shana Tova Umetuka, a happy and sweet new year to the whole AJC Passport family. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.